All right, let's finish up with Mrs. Dalloway. Now, right after the suicide of Septimus, we switch back to the consciousness of Peter Walsh. And he's hearing the ambulance that came and got Septimus. And his reflections on it are very ironic. One of the triumphs of civilization, Peter Walsh thought. It was one of the triumphs of civilization, as the light high bell of the ambulance sounded. Swiftly, cleanly, the ambulance sped to the hospital, having picked up instantly, humanely, some poor devil, some someone hit on the head, struck down by disease, knocked over perhaps a minute or two or so ago at one of those crossings as it might happen to oneself. That was civilization. So now, of course, we Peter doesn't know who the ambulance is getting. He's just making up and speculating and thinking about how what a wonderful civilized thing this is. But as readers, we have to be very skeptical about that. I think uh, uh, consistently, you know, the the book asks us to question Peter's uh, viewpoint on things, and here's yet another example of that. And notice on the uh, near the top of 2240 that Peter reflects on one of the major themes in the book, the idea of privacy. Uh, it says, it is the privilege of loneliness. In privacy, one may do as one chooses. Um, but he, you know, that that's, comes up again and again, the, the idea of a private life being free. And that's, of course, also very ironic with juxtaposed with the suicide of Septimus, uh, that his, he was not, was he free to do as he chose? Certainly there was some kind of loneliness in Septimus's mental illness, but his, his privacy, in fact, that's very much what he uh, wanted to avoid, is having his privacy violated. He wanted to burn all of his writings so the doctors couldn't get them. And so, again, that kind of links thematically to what's just happened, though Peter himself doesn't realize that. It's only the reader who does. But soon, as they tend to, Peter's thoughts turn towards Clarissa Dalloway, and he thinks about their relationship as he does frequently when they were younger. Look at the bottom of 2240. Clarissa had a theory in those days. They had heaps of theories, always theories, as young people have. It was to explain the feeling they had of dissatisfaction, not knowing people, not being known. And again, this is a, a key theme in the book, the idea of how much you can know people, how, how much of, of people can be known. For how could they know each other? You met every day, then not for six months or years. It was unsatisfactory, they agreed, how little one knew people. But she said, sitting on the bus going up Shaftesbury Avenue, she felt herself everywhere, not here, 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 and she tapped the back of the seat, but everywhere. She waved her hand, going up Shaftesbury Avenue. She was all that, so that to know her, or anyone, one must seek out the people who completed them, even the places. Odd affinities she had with people she had never spoken to, some woman in the street, some man behind the counter, even trees or barns. It ended in a transcendental theory which, 
with her horror of death, allowed her to believe, or say that she believed, for all her skepticism, that since our apparitions, the part of us which appears are so momentarily compared with the other, the unseen part of us, which spreads wide, the unseen might survive, be recovered somehow, attached to this person or that, or even haunting certain places after death. Perhaps. Perhaps. So this is a very interesting... Now, it, it, the point has been made, and he mentions it here, that Clarissa is not a religious person. She does not believe in an afterlife in, in any kind of theological way, but she's saying that there's something about about the force of your personality that can linger on after you in the places you've been, in the connections with people that you've known. And uh, Peter takes that up and says there there is something to that. And he says about his relationship with Clarissa, brief, broken, often painful as their actual meetings had been, what with his absences and interruptions, this morning, for instance, when Elizabeth, like a long-legged colt, handsome, dumb, just as he was beginning to talk to Clarissa, the effect of them on his life was immeasurable. There was a mystery about it. You were given a sharp, acute, uncomfortable grain, the actual meeting. Horribly painful, as often as not, yet in absence, in the most unlikely places, it would flower out, open, shed its scent, let you touch, taste, look about you, get the whole feel of it, and understanding after years of lying, lost. Thus she had come to him, on board ships, in the Himalayas, suggested by the oddest things. So Sally Sutton, generous, enthusiastic goose, thought of him when she saw blue hydrangeas. She had influenced him more than any person he had ever known. So again, this is getting very near, I think, the, the humatic core of this story, uh, the effect that you have on people. Uh, in one hand, the book is saying that people are kind of unknowable, we're all kind of trapped in our own heads. On the other hand, it's saying that people can have these deep, profound influences on you, even if it's not a lifelong relationship. He he, he had some intense times when he was with Clarissa and they have you know, kind of echoed and ramified throughout his life uh, as she's the most important, most influential person on him of anyone he's ever known, which is quite a, a sweeping statement. Now, after he gets back to his hotel and he gets, uh, Peter gets kind of flustered because uh, Clarissa has sent him a letter and that gets him all stirred up again, but he takes out a snapshot of the, the woman he wants to marry. She's not quite his fiance yet because she's still married. Uh, on 2243, uh, he's looking at her uh, Daisy all in white with a fox terrier on her knee, very charming, very dark, the best he had ever seen of her. It did come, after all, so naturally, so much more naturally than Clarissa. No fuss, no bother, no finicking, no f or fidgeting, all plain sailing. So this is, he's contrasting. The relationship with Daisy is easy. There isn't all of this complication and conflicted feelings and all that, but he's not at all sure that that's going to work. He thinks, suppose they did marry. For him, it would be all very well, but what about her? Mrs. Burgess, a good sort, and no chatterbox, 
in whom he had confided, thought his absence, this absence of his in England, ostensibly to see lawyers, might serve to make Daisy reconsider, think what it meant. It was a question of her position, Miss, Mrs. Burgess said, the social barrier, giving up her children. She'd be a widow with a past one of these days, draggling about in the suburbs, or, more likely, indiscriminate. You know, she said, what such women get like, with too much paint. Uh, now, we, we get Mrs. Burgess it seems like a fairly judgmental person here, but notice that now he's thinking about the relationship with Daisy from Daisy's point of view. Uh, what it, you know, for him, it, you know, it would be all very well, but there might be problems for her that he hasn't considered. Uh, and, and so this is, instead of just thinking how much he loves her, he's thinking about what it would cost her to divorce and remarry him. And that's unusual for, for Peter, actually. Look at the top of 2244. He says, quite, you know, right straight out, he never knew what people thought. Uh, it had become more and more difficult for him to concentrate. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't get inside other people's heads uh, the the way that uh, uh, you know, some people can. There there again, that's a theme in the book. People are opaque. You can't quite see what's going on with them. And he's been wrestling with himself ever since Clarissa said, "Remember my party." Uh, wrestling with himself whether he would go to her party or not, and he's about reconciled himself. To that, and then he decides in the middle of twenty-two forty-five that he will. He would go to Clarissa's party, and right in the middle of the page there, for this is the truth about our soul. He thought, our self, who fish-like inhabits deep seas and plies among obscurities, threading her way between the bowls of giant weeds over sun-flickered spaces, and on and on into gloom, cold, deep inscrutable. Suddenly, she shoots to the surface and sports on the wind-wrinkled waves, that is, has a positive need to brush, scrape, kindle herself, gossiping. Um, so this is the image he uses, the reason he's going to the party, that after, you know, we ourselves, like fishes in, in an ocean, in all of these cold, deep, inscrutable places. But sometimes, even though a fish is, you know, made for the water, it likes to go to the surface to sport on the, the wind-wrinkled waves. And that's what he sees this social occasion, this party as. Uh, it's, and, and think about that in comparison to what uh, Clarissa said was the value of her parties, about bringing people together. Uh, you know, Peter talks about gossiping. Uh, there's something, you, you can have these deep profound inner reflective monologues but you also need to be to live on the surface at some time and again a lot of a lot of you know as, as the novel draws to a close here uh, I think uh, Wolf is really kind of sounding her themes and kind of bringing them to the surface uh, in, in, particularly in Peter's reflections here on the the very next page on the bottom of 2246 another example of this um Peter thinks, having done things millions of times, enriched them, though it might be said to take the surface off. The past enriched, and experience, and having cared for one or two people. So this, again, the kind of the enriched experience, the, the depths of experience that you get. And uh, he said he was about to have an experience, but what? 
Beauty, anyhow, not the crude beauty of the eye, it was not beauty pure and simple, Bedford Place leading into Russell Square, it was straightness, an emptiness, of course, the symmetry of a corridor. But it was also windows lit up, a piano, a gramophone sounding, a sense of pleasure-making, hidden. But now and again emerging when, through the uncurtained window, the, uh, the window left open, one saw parties sitting over tables, young people slowly circling, conversations between men and women, maids idly looking out, a strange comment theirs when work was done, stockings drying on top ledges, a parrot, a few plants, absorbing, mysterious, of infinite richness, this life. Now, notice that he's, his idea of beauty is glimpsing things through a window, and that should bring to mind the moment where uh, Clarissa has been seeing her neighbor, the woman who's her neighbor, through her window, but the the woman's not aware of her. And that was her image of privacy. Uh, You know, I'm in this room and she's in that room. And here Peter is seeing a similar thing. But to him, as it was to Clarissa, it's something very beautiful, something very profound, uh, something about the richness of of living in the world. Um, So Peter does decide he's going to go to the party. And when we get to... The, the the next section we're in Lucy's head. Lucy is is uh, uh, Clarissa's maid. The bottom of twenty two forty seven. She's thinking about the prime minister coming, in, and we get her, you know, kind of very busy thinking about uh, all the preparations and getting done. And we have yet another consciousness that we're in in this book. Now look at the moment where uh, where Peter comes into the party, uh, and Clarissa greets him. This is uh, twenty two forty nine. How delightful to see you," said Clarissa. She said it to everyone. How delightful to see you. She was at her worst, effusive, insincere. It was a great mistake to have come. He should have stayed at home and read his book, thought Peter Walsh. Uh, so he's, he's, you know, instantly having second thoughts here, you know. And he's, oh, he, she just, she doesn't really, she says it's delightful to see you, but she says that to everyone. I shouldn't have come. And, uh, again, all those second thoughts that he has. And then we get into Clarissa's head. Oh, dear. It was going to be a failure, a complete failure. Clarissa felt it in her bones as dear old uh, uh, old Lord Lexham stood there apologizing for his wife, who had caught cold at the Buckingham Palace garden party. She could see Peter out of the tail of her eye, criticizing her there in that corner. Why, after all, did she do these things? Why seek pinnacles and stand drenched in fire? Might it consume her anyhow? Burn her to cinders? Better anything. Better brandish one's torch and hurl it to the earth than taper and dwindle away like some Ellie Henderson. It was extreme. It was extraordinary how Peter put her into these states just by coming and standing in a corner. He made her see herself. Exaggerate. It was idiotic. Now notice her kind of second thoughts. Oh, this is going to be a terrible party. And she, she's self-aware enough to know that it's Peter that kind of puts her in this mood, that they they both have an effect on each other. They're, they both have feelings for each other that get them all kind of wound up. Um, but she's, and, and she's thinking, oh, why do I have these parties? What's the point of them? You know, it's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be a mistake. Uh, so in, though they're kind of isolated from each other, they're both feeling very similar things at this moment.
Now, we get a lot of kind of reflections of various peoples at the parties, but look at the moment where the Prime Minister and Lady Bruton come in. This is on 2252, um, near the bottom. And now Clarissa escorted her Prime Minister down the room, prancing, sparkling, with the stateliness of her gray hair. She wore earrings and a silver-green mermaid's dress. Lolloping on the waves and braiding her tresses, she seemed, having that gift still, to be, to exist, to sum it all up in the moment as she passed, turned, caught her scarf in some other woman's dress, unhitched it, laughed, all with the most perfect ease and air of a creature floating in its element. Uh, so we get this beautiful moment, and this is from from Peter's perspective, of just how perfect she is. And that, that mermaid green dress, we saw her mending that earlier, and how, again, she's in her element, the, you know, in kind of the perfect way that a mermaid is in her element. Uh, she says she has an inexpressible dignity, an exquisite cordiality, as if she wished the whole world well, and must now, being on the very verge and rim of things, take her leave. So she made him think. But he was not in love. <laughs> Peter's saying, he's all of this, but you know, I'm not, I'm not in love with her. No, that would be ridiculous. Um, you know, clearly, I mean, this this vision and the way he sees her and the way he idealizes her, he clearly is in love with her and is not yet willing to admit it. And another very interesting guest that we get at the party is Sally Seton, but she's now Lady Rossiter. Uh, she's grown up and gotten married, and as we see, she's quite different, and Clarissa thinks quite differently about her. Look at the bottom of 2256. Clarissa sees Sally and Peter together, and Sally is laughing, but her voice was wrung of its old ravishing richness, her eyes not aglow as they used to be when she smoked cigars, when she ran down the passage to fetch her sponge bag without a stitch of clothing on, and Ellen Atkins asked, what if the gentleman had met her? But everyone forgave her. Uh, so, it's, you know, she thinks about, you know, her warmth and her vitality then, and it's, it's not, it's just not the same anymore. And Clarissa remembered having to persuade her not to denounce him at family prayers, which that is Hugh uh, Whitbread, who she said uh, tried to kiss her in the cloakroom, um, which she was capable of doing with her daring, her recklessness, her melodramatic love of being the center of everything and creating scenes. And it was bound, Clarissa used to think, to end in some awful tragedy, her death, her martyrdom. Instead of which... She had married, quite unexpectedly, a bald man with a large buttonhole who owned, it was said, cotton mills at Manchester, and she had five boys. So now this is maybe not what we would have expected from a free spirit like Sally Sutton. She seems to have settled down and become very conventional, and, and the, though she Clarissa can remember the passion that she had with Sally. It, it, it doesn't exist in the present anymore. She's, uh, she's changed. She's a different person. And, of course, that raises one of the major questions in the book. How well did Clarissa really know Sally? Was the Sally she remembered kind of a, a projection, uh, a wish fulfillment almost? Uh, and is this more the, the real person now before her? 
Uh, or is it the other way? Is this kind of a, a, a mask or a role that she's in, uh, playing and the younger version was the real her? Now, at this moment, in come the Bradshaws, um, Sir William and his wife, and they say that they are shockingly late. Of course, the reason that they are late, this is the top of 2258, um, was that they had to attend to Septimus. They don't name him, but they talk about a man who had the deferred effects of shell shock. Um, A young man, uh, that is what Sir William is telling Mr. Dalloway, had killed himself. He had been in, in the army. Oh, thought Clarissa, in the middle of my party. Here's death, she thought. Now, you know, the idea of uh, the fear of death uh, and the idea of death has been in the book almost from the beginning. And that refrain of fear no more, the heat of the sun, is about about death as somehow a blessing. You know, now that you're dead, you don't have to worry about the, 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 the hot sun. But uh, Clarissa is profoundly affected by the news of this death, and she seems to understand it. Uh, at least Septimus's uh, feelings about it, um, that he had preserved something. She says that death was defiance. Death was an attempt to communicate. People feeling the impossibility of reaching the center which mis- mystically evaded them. Closeness drew apart. Rapture faded. One was alone. There was an embrace in death. But this young man who had killed himself... And he plunged, holding his treasure. If it were now to die, twere now to be most happy, she had said to herself once, coming down in white. Now that was the moment when she saw Sally Seton, who is here and very different. Uh, and it's also the quotation from Othello, uh, that moment of perfect happiness. Uh, and so many characters in this book have had the, those moments of happiness. Um, and so all of this is kind of being drawn together in Clarissa's thoughts. Uh, says, Or there were poets and thinkers. Suppose he had had that passion and had gone to Sir William Bradshaw, a great doctor, yet to her, uh, to her obscurely evil, without sex or lust, extremely polite to women, but capable of some indescribable outrage. So Clarissa gets William that there is something... Uh, uh, something creepy about him, forcing your soul, that was it. If this young man had gone to him and Sir William had impressed him like that with his power, might he not have then have said, indeed, she felt it now, life is made intolerable. They make life intolerable, men like that. Now, this is a very deeply sympathetic understanding of a man that she's never known. Uh, there have been intersections between Septimus's day and and the uh, people and Clarissa and the people who know or know her uh, throughout the day, but she's never met him. She doesn't know him. She really doesn't even know his name. Uh, but she can understand. She can think her way into. She can uh, know what he was feeling and what his motivations were. But this does not make her feel depressed. Uh, and quite the opposite. Um, I look on the top of 2259. It was due to Richard. She had never been so happy. Again, that, that theme. Nothing could be slow enough. Nothing last too long. No pleasure could equal, she thought, straightening the chairs, pushing in one book on the shelf, this having done with the triumphs of youth, lost herself 
in the process of living, to find it with a shock of delight as the sun rose, as the day sank. Many a time had she gone at Burton when uh, they were all talking to look at the sky or seen it between people's shoulders at dinner, seen it in London when she could not sleep. She walked to the window. So she's not, you know, this does not make her suicidal. It makes her more appreciative of just the, the joy she takes, the happiness she takes in the simple process of living, the simple things, you know, or, you know, straightening the chairs, arranging the books. Again, this is making everything neat and tidy. Something as simple as that can be uh, beautiful, beautiful and pleasurable. So she goes to the window and she sees the her lady, the old lady who's her neighbor. But this time the old lady stared straight at her. She was going to bed. And the sky, it will be a solemn sky, she had thought. It will be a dusky sky, turning away its cheek and beauty. But there it was, ashen, pale, raced over quickly by tapering vast clouds. It was new to her. The wind must have risen. So she's looking at seeing the, the, the sky there, and again just being caught up in the beauty of that, but also seeing this neighbor. She was going to bed in the room opposite, it was fascinating to watch her moving about, the old lady crossing the room, coming to the window. Could she see her? It was fascinating, with people still laughing and shouting in the drawing room, to watch that old woman, quite quietly, going to bed. She pulled the blind now. The clock began striking. So here, again, in this moment where she was thinking about that woman was a symbol of the kind of privacy and the, the inability to know other people in some ways. At this moment, the lady stares straight at her. So maybe there is, maybe she is aware that she's being watched, being looked at. Maybe there is a connection here that Clarissa didn't realize. The same way that she's having this connection uh, with Septimus, the man she didn't even know. And the clock chimes, the symbol of time marching on and mortality. Um, it, it's three o'clock. Uh, the old lady had put out her light. The whole house was dark now with this going on. She repeated, and the words came to her, Fear no more the heat of the sun. There's that thing she'd been thinking about that this morning, uh, that kind of acceptance of mortality and death. She must go back to them. She has to go back to the party. She's wrapped up in this moment, but knows she has to return. But what an extraordinary night. She felt somehow very like him, the young man who had killed himself. She felt glad that he had done it, thrown it away. The clock was striking. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. He made her feel the beauty, made her feel the fun, but she must go back. She must assemble. She must find Sally and Peter. And she came in from the little room. So now this is, in some ways, the, the climax of the novel here. This is the moment of epiphany that Clarissa Dalloway feels. Uh, she's been thinking that, that line, fear no more the heat of the sun, but now she really feels it. And death is not something that is fearful, here, it's something that she's almost glad of. of. 
and she understands why Septimus committed suicide. Uh, she sees it as a the kind of grand, noble gesture. Remember, Septimus said that it was it's people like Bradshaw and Holmes that thought of this as tragic. Clarissa doesn't think of it as tragic. And it also, again, it makes her feel the, the beauty and the fun of her own life. And Wolf really weaves together all of the, the themes and motifs of the book into these couple of pages here where Clarissa is reflecting. And, you know, she had to go off and be by herself, alone in a room. And again, the idea of being alone is so important in this novel. Uh, and, and symbolically, the, the quotes from Shakespeare, uh, if, uh, if it were now to die, it were now to be most happy and fear no more the heat of the sun, those come back in. Uh, the looking at the woman across the, the her neighbor and through the window, all of that comes back in, and it leads to this kind of, uh, of almost feeling of grace uh, that she's accepting her her life in a way that she and and uh, enjoying it in a way that she hadn't been through the rest of the novel. But the novel doesn't end here. It goes on, and there's this. Uh, we have. Peter and Sally, who are kind of the the late, staying late at the party till the very end, they want to see Clarissa one more time, uh, and kind of waiting for her to you know come out of this private room. Uh, but we get some thoughts about Sally on Clarissa, the top of twenty two sixty one. What Sally felt was simply this: she would owed Clarissa an enormous amount. They had been friends, not acquaintances, friends. And she still saw Clarissa, all in white, going about the house with her hands full of flowers. To this day, tobacco plants made her think of of Burton. But did Peter understand? She lacked something. Lacked, what was it? She had charm. She had extraordinary charm. But to be frank, and she felt that Peter was an old friend, a real friend, did absence matter? Did distance matter? She had often wanted to write him, but torn it up, yet felt he understood, for people understand things without being said, as one realizes, growing old, and old she was. Uh, she had uh, had been that afternoon to see her son at Eton, with they had the mumps. To be quite frank, then, how could Clarissa have done it? Married Richard Dalway, a sportsman, a man who cared only for dogs. Literally, when he came into the room, he smelt of the stables. And then all this, she waved her hand. Now, this is pretty rich coming from uh, Lady Rossiter, who has also settled down uh, with a, a very conventional man, uh, but just saying, well, how could she have married Richard Dalloway? Um, but notice just that paragraph that I read, the way it shows, as Virginia Woolf is so good at doing, the kind of... of the, the process of somebody's thoughts, it kind of skirts from one idea to the next. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lack of focus. Uh, if, there are a few moments in the novel where the, the people's minds become very focused, and they're, they're almost zen-like moments. But most of them are like this. They, they follow a train of thought and get derailed and think about this other thing, and, oh, that reminds me of, and that's how Sally is acting. And again, part of this is contrast. She's not, Sally has not had this great epiphany that uh, Clarissa has had. And her, her, I think we can see her judgments about Clarissa, uh, that she's lacking something, may be a little off. I mean, we, we, we think maybe it's Sally who is lacking something.
And a look a little lower on the page, uh, talking with with Peter, said, Sally wondered what did he mean, and how odd it was to know him, and yet not know a single thing that had happened to him. And did he say it out of pride? Uh, very likely, for after all, it must be galling for him, though he was an oddity, a, a sort of sprite, not at all an ordinary man. It must be lonely at his age to have no home, nowhere to go to. Uh, so here she is trying, you know, thinking sympathetically about uh, Peter, but realizing that, you know, she knows him and yet doesn't really know anything about him. Um, that, uh, you know, his knows his feelings for Clarissa, but doesn't really, uh, and knows kind of what his personality is, but doesn't really know the story of his life. She just has heard it kind of at best, second or third hand. And I think it's also a very telling detail that we find out that uh, Sally was not invited to this party. Uh, she came without an invitation. That, now, that seems like the the old Sally that we knew. That's not the one that seems to have been changed. So how much has she changed? How much uh, is, was she always like this? Uh, again, the book kind of, and the way uh, uh, Virginia Woolf sets up, we've heard a lot about Sally, but now we're actually seeing her. And even so, we can't really know her. Uh, again, that's a consistent theme in the story. And look at near the, the bottom of 2262, where Sally is thinking, for she had come to feel that it was the only thing worth saying, what one felt. Cleverness was silly. One must simply, one must say simply what one felt. But I do not know, said Peter Walsh, what I feel. <laughs> it's, uh, it's wonderful. You know, just say what you feel. Well, Peter Walsh has been struggling with his... He literally doesn't know what he feels. He keeps telling himself he's not in love with uh, Clarissa anymore. Um, he's not in touch with his feelings, as we would say today. Uh, so he can't just say what he feels. He, he's, he, he's not capable of doing that. Uh, but he is thinking you know, that uh, one could not be in love twice. He said, uh, well, that's an interesting statement. I mean, we know he was in love with Clarissa. And so does that mean that he realizes he's not really in love with Daisy? Uh, it, it seems to suggest that. And look at the, the top of 2263. Again, they're, they're talking about this odd relationship to them between uh, Clarissa and Richard Dalloway. Um, but what has he done? Sally asked. This, talking about Richard public works, she supposed. And were they happy together? Sally asked. She herself was extremely happy, for she admitted she knew nothing about them, only jumped to conclusions, as one does. For what can one know even about the people one lives with every day? She asked. Are we not all prisoners? She had read a wonderful play about a man who scratched on the wall of his cell, and she had felt that was true of life. One scratched on the wall, despairing of human relationships. People were so difficult. She often went into her garden and got from her flowers a piece which men and women never gave her. So here again, the uh, Sally is really kind of her thoughts are honing in on the the, the thematic core of the story. Um, th this, you're in a you're a prisoner. You can't really get out. You kind of scratch on the wall. Uh, but we've already seen that that's not entirely true, uh, that uh, Clarissa managed to bridge 
that gap somehow, even for somebody who was a complete stranger to her that she had never known and never met in her life. So there is a way of making those connections. Uh, and in fact, if Peter disagrees. So Peter did not agree. We know nothing. We know everything, he said. But at least he did. Um, and so the very final moments of the book are, from Peter's point of view, seeing Clarissa. So it ends with, with Sally is going to go say goodnight to uh, Richard Dalloway, and uh, uh, Peter says he'll join her. Uh, but he sat for a moment. This is the very end of the novel. What is this terror? What is this ecstasy? He thought to himself. What is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said, for there she was. So it ends with this, I think, at least the suggestion of an epiphany for Peter as well. He's been telling himself all day that he doesn't really love her, but this terror and this ecstasy and this extraordinary excitement, what is it? It's Clarissa, and there she was. Um, uh, the book is very much a kind of a, an existentialist story. It's about the again the process of being alive about living in the in the in the world in a way that gives it meaning and clarissa is what gives meaning to peter's life and he seems to kind of accept that at the very end of the the novel so we get an epiphany for him as well as for clarissa by the end of the story now you might think how extraordinarily diff different uh, the effect of Mrs. Dalloway is from the effect of Jane's, Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Um, th there's not really a plot to Mrs. Dalloway. There are some incidents that are happening, and there's some very significant and important things in terms of the characters and their uh, their self-discovery. But there's, you know, the, the 19th century novel with its very carefully constructed plot, not there at all. It's uh, a book like this, and this is very typical of the modernist literature of the early 20th century. It's, it's obsessed with the interior emotional lives of the characters. That's why they use the stream of consciousness method. That's why they want to get into these, these people's heads and see how they think and feel and almost feel them from the inside. Um, now, there are certainly connections with... Um, the events of the of history and of the world. I mean, obviously Septimus's shell shock was something that was a real problem in the wake of World War One. Um, but it, this is not primarily a book about the effects of World War One on soldiers. It happens to have a character in that where that happens, but it's not really making a social commentary as much as it's making a psychological one. It's trying to talk about people's uh, interior lives. Now, of course, in a way, so was Jane Austen, but she did it in a very different way. Uh, she had a, a, a kind of a third-person, omniscient narrator who could, and, and there was a kind of, uh, always that kind of wry, humorous tone that you see things through. The, uh, the tone in Mrs. Dalloway shifts like everything else in it does because it's shifting from mind to mind. Um, and, and there's not a kind of a simple happily ever after ending here, 
the way there is in a you know a Charles Dickens novel, uh, but there is a, the, again these kind of moments of epiphany of self-realization, uh, the same way that you saw at the end of of James Joyce's story, The Dead, uh, and that's mainly what the the modernist novel is is about. Uh, and Mrs. Dalloway is a is a fine exemplar of that. All right, well. We'll uh, we'll end uh, Mrs. Dalloway there. For next time, I would like you to read Salman Rushdie's story, The Prophet's Hair. And I want you to think about how the, the storytelling techniques here are very different, both from Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, that kind of high modernist fiction, and from the 19th century, uh, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice model. Uh, there's a very different way of telling a story, a very different kind of tone. Um, and think about how how he's telling a story, and what is the, the the tone of this story, and what is the message that it has, if it has a message. Uh, we'll be thinking about that uh, for next time. Uh, but for now, I thank you for your attention, and we will discuss Salman Rushdie's The Prophet's Hair next time.